For the ancient Israelite, making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem was symbolic in many ways. Coming to the holy city meant coming to meet with God. That's why you came to Jerusalem. Jerusalem itself represented security and safety provided by the Lord, and the feasting that happened in that city represented the joyfully abundant salvation and deliverance of God. God had saved his people and brought them to the city where they could feast in his presence. Now, all these annual pilgrimages and subsequent feasting were not just to celebrate past salvation or past deliverance, but also to anticipate their real home in the Lord's presence where they would feast and celebrate God's peace in God's place. And it was this singular hope of flourishing in God's presence that motivated God's people to undertake the dangerous journey from wherever they were to the city of Jerusalem. Now, while Psalms 120, 121, if you weren't here for those, you can go back and listen to them. While those Psalms teach us how to be homesick, Psalm 122 teaches us how to respond to the news that we are going home. Having been told that we are heading to the house of the Lord, how then should we live? How do we live in this present world knowing that feasting, righteousness, shalom, peace, and security awaits us in the future? As we will see in Psalm 122, our life in God's presence should motivate us to be people of prayer and people of peace who depend upon the Lord and do good to those around us. So, that lays out a roadmap for the psalm. The psalms fall into this genre known as poetry, which means that we as readers should take extra special care to understand the author's imagery, his symbolism, and even his structure. In poetry, even structure matters, and it communicates a message. Every word, every line, and every theme, and where it sits is, impo- is important in poetry. We see this in music, right? When a, when a songwriter writes a song and he chooses to place a refrain in a certain place or a bridge in a certain place, it can significantly change the flow of thought of the song altogether. Just move it one lyric up or one line up and it completely changes the tenor and the tone and the theme of the song sometimes. Well, in the same way, understanding the structure of a psalm can significantly shape how we read it. That said, you're going to learn a big word today. Psalm 122 forms a chiasm. Everybody should know what a chiasm is if you've been here more than a year at Grace Church. A chiasm, loosely defined, is a literary tool in which the author shapes his message, his material, to mirror itself and sometimes to highlight a central theme or a statement, a line or whatever it is. The first line and the last line mirror each other. They have the same words or the same theme, and then you get to the next lines, and they mirror each other until you get to a middle point, to a statement, and that's the high point that we find. And we find that chiasm in Psalm 122. I think we have a little image to show up. Guys in the back, do we have that chiasm to place up? Okay, they're going to keep going. If you work through Psalm 122... Then you see these statements in verses one through two. You see the house of the Lord. 
And then in verses eight and nine, you see he returns to that theme, the house of the Lord. That's the sandwich of this chiasm. And then in verses three through four, he speaks of Jerusalem's security, how it's built firmly together. It's bound together. I think he speaks of the city's walls here. And so we get Jerusalem's security in verses three through four, and then Jerusalem's security in verses six through seven. And then you come to verse five, the central statement that stands out all by itself, that speaks of the thrones of the house of David. So we're working through this psalm, and we see this structure that the, that the author is artistically making in order to lead us to the climax, which is the just thrones of David's house. Now, it's in that line, in line C in verse 5, that we as Christians glimpse the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We're going to get there, and we're going to explain how Jesus is in this psalm. But one of the things we should note off the bat is while the psalm was sung by Israelites who were on their way to the physical city of Jerusalem, it never, nevertheless applies to you as Christians as we journey to the heavenly city of Jerusalem where God will dwell with his people forever and where the Davidic king will reign in true justice. Okay, so let's, let's go through it. Let's begin with line A. Let us go to the house of the Lord, verses one through two. The psalm penned by David is all about heading to the Lord's house. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now, if you were here when we, when we spoke of Psalm 120 and 121, the psalmist was in exile. He was far out away from the land in Meshach and Kedar, right? So he was away from the Lord, isolated. Well, now we get to Psalm 122 and the psalmist has moved into the city gates, into Jerusalem's gates. Now that's great. He's gone from being in exile to being actually standing inside the gates of Jerusalem. But that's not enough for him. He's not content to just dwell in the city gates. He and his fellow pilgrims who've been standing inside the gates of Jerusalem will not be content until they stand in the house of the Lord. That's where they want to go. That's their goal. As great as the gates of the city of Jerusalem are, with its splendor, its secure walls, and its, all of its comforts, and all the things that came from living in the refuge city of Jerusalem, David reserves his greatest joy for the Lord's presence. That's what he wants beyond everything else. His journey will only be over when he stands with God's people in God's place basking in God's presence. That's all he wants. Take away the city of David, take away the palace, take away all the things. There's the chiasm there if you want to jot it down. Take away all the amenities of Jerusalem and he will have the presence of the Lord. That's what he wants more than anything. Now, you may never have experienced a pilgrimage quite like David. You have probably never walked miles and miles and miles from your hometown to the capital city of your country and then worshiped at the temple there. However, the joy of standing in the Lord's presence with God's people is something that is available to us even now. We may not have the same type of pilgrimage, but we are on a pilgrimage to the Lord's presence to celebrate and worship with God's people. Derek Kidner, a commentator, writes, there is a miniature of this gladness in any meeting of true worship. 
three times a year, three times a year God's people would flock, they would leave their hometowns and they would travel together to Jerusalem to worship together. My friends, they would go all the way to Jerusalem into the city gates and up the temple steps to worship the Lord and celebrate together. That is the joy that we've been given and invited into every single Sunday and every single time that we gather together as God's people. This experience, this gladness of going to the house of God is not unique to Psalm 122 and to the ancient Israelites. It's been given to us. We face dangers. We face fears. We face anxieties and the trials of exile throughout the week. And then we come. We come here. We gather it's not the building by any means. You know, the, the, the building itself is just brick and wood and plaster or whatever else it is. But it's the people. I find this so refreshing for us as marching orders that, that number one, it attacks our attitude in coming to church. Oftentimes we come with it on Sunday morning, we wake up, ah, oh, church. I guess we should, shouldn't we? I guess we ought to. But the psalmist comes at this gathering with, I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. I was glad when they, my brothers and sisters, said, let's go stand in the Lord's presence. It should be refreshing to you. It should be a need to come and stand in this place with other believers and to worship the Lord. So number one, it attacks your attitudes in coming to the house of the Lord and coming to be with God's temple, which are the people in whom he dwells, but it also gives us marching orders as a church. Have you ever stopped to wonder why people hate coming to church? Why do people hate coming to church? Do they feel as if coming to church is gonna be the refreshment that they need? The drink of cold water, that first drink of cold water after walking through the desert for the week? Do people feel like they're gonna find grace and love and hugs? Not lectures and angry tirades and snub-nosed clean people that, that dress their best here just to, just to do power plays with one another? Do people come to church realizing that this is where there is peace, this is where there is joy, this is where you can find rest? I don't think we think of church rightly. I think sometimes church becomes an opportunity to parade our self-righteousness, which causes others to not want to come. And then on our worst moments, we don't have gladness in coming to the house of the Lord. We don't enjoy the refreshment that here. Maybe it's because we're afraid of being judged by others. Maybe it's because of all the hard work that it's going to be to, to present an image. Just wears you out, doesn't it? That, that you have to get dressed, you have to wash your face, you have to look good. You have to talk right. So all the, way that you, all, the, all the ways that you talk throughout the week, you can't do that here. Don't smell like smoke. Right? I mean, there's, there's all these things. It's just like, do you imagine how much work it is to come to church? And yet the message of Jesus is, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Maybe we're thinking of church wrongly because 
we should be coming to the house of the Lord in gladness, knowing that the Lord is there. Our gracious and good Father is there, ready to commune with his people, ready to allow us to sit a while and practice eternity together. You see, committing oneself to a church is not primarily a religious obligation, though we are certainly commanded to gather with other believers. Everyone asks me, where is the command that says that you have to go to church? Well, Hebrews 10.25. If you want to jot it down, look it up, black and white, it's right there, okay? Um, If you need it written in red, just because you only pay attention to the words in red, I'll type it up in red font and print it off and give it to you. (laughs) Do not neglect the gathering of yourselves together. That's the command. Instead of being a religious obligation, though, or primarily a command, committing oneself to a church is a redemptive preview of the great ingathering that's still to come. As believers from every tribe, every nation, every tongue flock to the heavenly Zion to worship Yahweh, as people from Tanzania and Malawi and China and Dominican Republic and Colombia, as they come in worship, we prefigure that now. We have lots of different diverse people. We prefigure that kind of ingathering together. And so even on the, the beautiful city still awaits us in the future, we are able to partake, to, to foretaste, to have a little appetizer of that even right now as we come together. So if you miss church, it's not just that you failed the checkbox of religious duty. Okay, that's, that's not the tragedy. The tragedy isn't that you didn't do something that you should have done. The tragedy isn't that there's going to be a whole bunch of people that are going to judge you for not coming. The tragedy isn't that your main reason for not coming was you didn't want to get out of your PJs. The real tragedy in not coming together with other believers on a regular basis is that it's a neglect and a refusal to foretaste the meal that's to come. You're deliberately neglecting a kindness been given to you in the here and now. When Rachel bakes cookies, there is a good discipline to wait until the cookies are baked to eat them. But how tragic would it be when she offers that spoonful of dough? Here, honey, try. The sweetness has been given now. Don't neglect such kindness, right? Right? Chocolate chip cookie dough on a spoon offered to you by your wife. You're just crazy if you say no to that. The baked cookies are great. They will be better than the dough on the spoon. But why? Why say no to the dough now? My friends, God has given us sweetness and feasting and festivity, fun, celebration as God's people, joy, gladness in the now. And yet we act as if we have to pretend there's only mourning, only somberness in the here and now until that comes. Pick up the spoon every Sunday and taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't starve yourself in the here and now. Pre-taste, foretaste the joy of feastal worship in God's presence that has been freely given to you if only you are wise enough to partake in it. Now we come to the next section of verses. That's line B there. 
in verses three through four. Having proclaimed his gladness to be going to the Lord's house, the psalmist moves to describe the city of Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Now, the phrase bound firmly together probably speaks of Jerusalem's walls. You find that same Hebrew word in in, uh, uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6, and then you get the same concept in Psalm chapter 48. And then you get that weird word, the word built. Now, that that in your English text may not be so clear, but it's a passive, right? Which I take to be a divine passive. He doesn't say who built the city, which typically in Scripture, especially in a psalm that's so God-centered, probably means he's thinking about God having built the city, city, Jerusalem, a city built by God that is bound firmly together. So that's the idea there. So just taking all those things together, it seems that David, in his God-centered focus in this psalm, is praising the fact that Jerusalem has been a city that has been built by God, secured by God himself for the purpose of his people worshiping him there. For the psalmist, the security, the protection of Jerusalem was not an end in in and of itself. The main goal was never comfort. The main goal is never to have walls up that protect you. Instead, the security of Jerusalem's walls that was provided by the Lord enabled pilgrims to worship him. That's the goal. The togetherness, the built firmly together, the togetherness of the walls allows for the togetherness of God's people. Because Jerusalem has walls that are joined securely together, then God's people can unite and place, the, and place themselves in worship um, in, in God's presence. Now, David's description of the Lord's protection of his worshipers is consistent with what we find in the rest of the Old Testament. We find in Zechariah 2 where the Lord says that he will be a wall of fire all around his people as they worship him. Right? So they're going to gather They're going to think about the Lord and thank him, and he's going to be a wall of fire around them. No hedges here, just walls of fire, right? In Psalm 125, a psalm of ascent that we're going to get to later, God surrounds his people like the mountains surround Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that all around there's mountains on every side, which made it a very difficult city to take. God's protection and the security of his people leads to their freedom. So our ability to worship and God's protection go hand in hand together. When the Lord surrounds his people, we can enjoy the best of fellowship and corporate worship because of the Lord who is our shelter. And I just, I just want to point that out. Sometimes we, we focus on the walls that have been given, right? The protection, the security. We, we emphasize the fact that our God has worked and now we have security of salvation. Now we have uh, an endurance, a, a promise that we know will be given. But we kind of sit on that as if that promise in and of itself is the purpose of why we were saved. That God just saved us so that we could be secure. Just saved us so that we could be saved with him. But that's never the point of his protection. His protection is a gift of his love for you so that you may also love him and worship, so that you can unite with other brothers and sisters. Sometimes we, we use our security, our, 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 the fact that we are firm in Christ, as the motivation for not getting together and worshiping with other people. That's not the point of your security. The point is, 
is that because you've been given an unshakable city, an unshakable kingdom, you are now able to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Hebrews 12, 28. Because of the unshakable nature of the city, you can approach God with brothers and sisters and worship. That's the right application of that. Sometimes we just make an idol out of our security with the Lord. Sometimes we, we worship the fact that what he has done has done, but we don't let that motivate us to a deeper, further relationship with God's people where we can come together and praise God and worship him and thank him for what he has done for us. My friends, the more you understand your salvation, the more you want to sing and to pray and to worship God with other believers. Isolated Christianity is a mark of immaturity, not maturity. We tend to think, well, we don't need other people now. I've grown out of that. I've outgrown the church. That's not what Psalm 122 speaks about. The, the security of the city leads to the fact that people can unite together. In the same way God has worked, he has secured us, he has protected us, and he provides for us so that now we can unify with other brothers and sisters in praise and worship. Now we come to the meat. So we had the bread, right? The house of the Lord. That's the top bun of this beautiful redemptive hamburger, okay? And then we got to the security of Jerusalem's walls and the call to worship. That's the lettuce and tomatoes, right? Now we get to the meat, the Davidic throne. Jerusalem, the place where the Lord's house is, the place of security and unified worship is also the place of justice. David writes, there the thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Now history is filled, even our history is filled, with corrupt and unjust rulers, politicians, parliaments, and governments. Everybody, even the lost world, even people who are not believers, claim to know their need for justice and somebody who will rule us in justice. Now we debate on what that word justice means, but the fact of the matter is, is the world is its own self-evidence. It's a testimony against itself to show that we have been prey to unjust leaders throughout all time. Mankind fails us, which is why we need a just king, a king who will protect the weak and the vulnerable from oppression and judge those who try to hurt them. Now, let's just define the word justice. It's become a political hotbed over the last couple of years. So I think since justice is a biblical concept, let's define it. Broadly defined, justice is rightness. When a king rules justly, he rules in a way that is right. Right being defined as according to God's standard. When wrong happens, the king sets it right, i.e. does justice, right? So, so in order to do justice, you've got to make something right. Have this image in your mind about something that was once straight that then becomes bent and crooked. Justice is the straightening out of the bent thing, right? It's, it's when a life is taken and that is made right. That's when justice is done, when that's not ignored or covered up. According to David, this is exactly the type of justice that's found in Jerusalem. The Davidic king will not harbor wrongdoing of any sort. 
He will make wrong things right. He will make crooked things straight. Bent things will be sorted out. It's important to note, though, that when David speaks of this Davidic king, he's not speaking of himself. He's speaking about his house. More specifically, his dynasty, as we see from 2 Samuel 7. David's house is David's dynasty. So when David talks about the thrones of the house of David, he's talking about the Davidic dynasty, from, whom, from which will come who? The Davidic son, the royal son. And now all eyes are pointed, including David's, all eyes are appointed to the Davidic son. Like Psalm 72, give the king your justice, O God. That's not David. And your righteousness to the royal son, to the son of David. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Then we come to Isaiah chapter 11, verses three through four, which was written post-David, after David died. A shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's a descendant in David's family line, will not judge by what his eyes see. So this is when the Davidic son rules, when the one who was promised in 2 Samuel 7 rules, he's not, simply, he's not gonna be someone who's fooled. You can't, you can't present a false narrative to him. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes based on what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike, the, uh, shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. When all oppressors lie crushed, when no longer people can use their power to overpower weaker people, when people will no longer use their money, their position, their political status, or whatever it is, to promote themselves and to humble others. God's people will dwell in peace. All eyes look forward to David's royal son. This is our central hope, that David has a son coming who's gonna sort it all out. He's gonna make all wrongs right. Everything bad that you can fathom is gonna be undone. Murder, genocide, all these things are gonna be completely wiped away when the son of David rules on the throne. And my friends, David looked forward to some unknown son. David looked forward to, a Davidic, to his Davidic house from whom the son would come, the dynasty from whom the son would come. We know his name. His name is King Jesus, the son of David the long-awaited one who has come to bear the just wrath of God in his death and who is coming again to rule and judge all nations. In the Apostles' Creed, this is central to our hope that Jesus is the just king. This is, this is not just something that we assume is true. This is something we believe and hold to and cling to. In the Apostles' Creed, it says this, I believe in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on and talks about his death, burial, and resurrection. And then it says, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We as Christians are people who put our hope in the fact that Jesus, the Davidic and cosmic king, reigns over all things, and because he reigns, all will one day be made right. 
Nothing wrong left in this world. Nothing accursed, nothing broken. Now, I, I think this is helpful because we celebrate justice of any form when it comes, right? We should. When a murderer is proven guilty and convicted, it's not perfect justice, but we do celebrate it nonetheless because it is justice in some sort. When Roe v. Wade is overturned, we celebrate because justice has been won at some point, at some form. Even if it's not perfect justice, it has been won at some point. However, this psalm teaches us that justice is ultimately not attached to legislation, to politics, or to any court system. Justice is indivisibly attached, welded to the hand of the Son of God. How, and, and what do we hope for justice? And what do we hope for justice? Yes, legislation is necessary. We should be people who advocate for just legislation. We should be people who long for, vote for, work for just politicians and leaders and rulers. But at the end of the day, we know justice is not inherent to any of those things. The world will not become just by right legislation, right governments, or right movements. The world will become just because we have the right king. Put your hope of justice in the king. Now this means that all Christians, be careful of speaking against justice, because this means that as people who have submitted ourselves to the Davidic king, are people who want justice. Justice is a good thing. I found it ironic throughout the last couple of years, there was a wholesale rejection among Christians of the word justice. Any time the word justice came, it became a political battle. My friends, it's, justice is not the problem. We should be people who want justice. The concept of, of what's being done wrong to be made right, that's characteristic of our faithfulness. God has revealed to you what is good, but to love justice, love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. It's inherent, according to Micah 5, 2, that Christians, in particular God's people, are people of justice. We mourn when injustice of any form is done. Whoever it's done to and whoever committed it, we mourn injustice. We mourn when there are things that have been done wrong. We advocate for justice to be given to the vulnerable and to the, press, the oppressed. We stand against our own tribe when they do injustice. That's what you're supposed to do as Christians. Your tribe is the Davidic king's tribe. That's, 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 that's your ultimate allegiance. Your political tribe is just a means to an end, right? It's the thing that can fluff off if they go in a way that the Davidic king doesn't rule. Our ultimate goal is to be people who stand for justice, who love justice, who want to see justice given to the vulnerable, the oppressed, that means by decrying racism, by decrying abortion. You realize those two things go hand in hand, right? To be pro-life people is to be anti-racist people. That th those two things do go hand in hand. Decry racism, abortion, abuse, human trafficking, genocide, war crimes, 
any other travesties that we see in this world, we are people of justice because we have a just king. Be careful how you speak in this world because at the end of the day, we want all to see that we are people who long, who groan for, who advocate for justice because ultimately we want people to know our just king, Jesus Christ. Just want to set the record straight there. The psalmist puts his hope. This is, he, he, he did it, he wanted it to be so clear that he made it the center of this chiasm too. So just to highlight it, that he longs for justice to roll down when the Davidic king sits enthroned. That's what we want. We want for bent things to be straightened out, crooked things to be made right, for the wickedness of the world to be eradicated. That's what we want as God's people. And that's why we hope. Now in verse six, the psalmist makes a subtle shift from descriptive to prescriptive. This is the, this is the first time he gives us a command in this psalm. Typically, psalms give praise. They don't make a ton of commands, but this one gives us an actual command, an imperative. He moves from describing Jerusalem's security to commanding his fellow worshipers to pray. David's joy in the Lord's house and in the security of the city leads him not to complacency, not to passivity, but to prayer. Here's what he says. In light of everything that's said, they're going to the house of God where God dwells with his people. They're going to Jerusalem where the walls are strong and God's people can gather and unite. He's going to the place from where the Davidic king will rule justly. And in light of all that, what does he do? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The prayer for shalom, this true flourishing peace, is a prayer that God's people will continue to flourish in peace. That's instructive, I think. Jerusalem's peace does not come merely from having the temple in the city, right? Jerusalem's peace does not come from having strong city walls. The house of the Lord is in Jerusalem, that's true. Jerusalem is built securely, that's true. But these things alone do not guarantee that shalom will come. It's a tragic, grave mistake for anybody in Jerusalem to assume that they will never be destroyed because the temple is there and because they have strong walls. We find that happening in Jeremiah and in Lamentations where Jeremiah has told the people, you're gonna be killed and Jerusalem's gonna be destroyed because of your infidelity to God. And I say, whoa, whoa, whoa. The house of the Lord is here. There's no way that Nebuchadnezzar's gonna come into here. We've got... We've got the temple right there and we've got these big strong walls. There's no way. And guess what happened? Nothing but charred bricks left to speak for them. The psalmist knows that no buildings, no religious institutions, no strong walls guarantee continued shalom and flourishing. It is the Lord who gives peace. The Lord himself. You see, I think sometimes we make the same mistake that ancient Israelites made. We hope in the things that God has given, signs of peace and flourishing. We hope in these things, and we totally miss the one that's given them. We forget to hope. 
in him. We forget where these things have come from. We, we dwell on the security of Christ that's been given to us in Christ, but we forget to commune with Christ. We, we quote all the time, you know, once saved, always saved, but we forget the Savior, which is the whole point for the reason why you were saved, was to commune with him. How many times have we, have we basked in the security and in, in the, the, the promises of God and yet forget the promise giver? David will not do that. He knows that all the security that comes from the house of the Lord and the security of Jerusalem's walls should lead him to greater dependence on God, not less. Not less. Your perseverance as God's people and God's preservation of you are two sides of the same coin. If God does not keep you, you will not keep the faith. Why did I wake up believing and trusting in Jesus Christ today? Because the Lord keeps me. Which means that at every single moment, every single moment, I'm dependent upon him. You know that phrase that we say, once saved, always saved, isn't a passive act. You're once saved and always saved because God stands as the forever living savior. If ever once God took his hand away from your salvation, salvation is gone. You will always be saved because God is, not was, is your savior and he has kept your salvation. He preserves his people. That's where our security rests. Not just in a thing. Now you'll have to think really hard about what I just said because what I'm pointing you to is not the thing of salvation itself, not the thing of security with Christ itself, not just the promises of God themselves, but the one who has given all those things. Do not confuse the gifts with the giver. The further you come to understand just how secure you are in Christ, the more you should realize your need to depend upon Christ. The more you come to realize all the things that God has given, the fact that you will make it home, the fact that he is keeping you for himself and is going to bring you home should throw you in dependence upon him. My friends, we as Christians sometimes grow in, in seeing that we have all these great securities and blessings and we tend to forget to pray. The more you see these things, the more you should be praying. The more that you bask in all the things that God has done, all the ways that he has finished the work of redemption, you should see it as the beginning of your walk in prayer. The psalmist loves that fact. Jerusalem's secure. It's got strong walls. The temple's there. What then? Not sit back in a long lawn chair and enjoy all those things, but go and pray and depend to throw himself upon the Lord. My friends, as mature Christians who know all the great blessings that God has given us, we continue to throw ourselves dependently upon God. Now we come to a second application. So the, just as the security of Jerusalem does not lead the psalmist to prayerless presumption, neither does it lead him to self-centeredness. Hopefully this is gonna change your 
paradigm of salvation. God did not save you just for salvation's sake itself, as if his only goal was to save you from hell. God doesn't save us from our enemies so that we can then presume upon kindness, but so that we can have a better walk with him. And here's the kicker in this next few verses, a better love for others. So he just got done talking about how all this security and the house of the Lord is gonna lead him to pray for Jerusalem and to pray for peace. But then he goes on to say in verses eight and nine, for my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Now the you here in these two verses is the city itself, Jerusalem. He seeks peace for his companions' sake, and he seeks to do good because the house of the Lord is among them. The fact that we as pilgrims have been delivered and given security in Christ in the city of God should not lead us to complacency or laziness. Instead, it should motivate us, like the Psalms, to do the most good possible. We should live in our city and do good. Because you know Jesus, because you have a secure place in him, because your name is graven on the palm of his hand, then you should depend in prayer and you should do whatever good you can for your neighbor, for those living in your city. It means loving your neighbor and not always seeking to declare war on him. It means not just holding up a sign to crying abortion, but actually going to the young mom, helping her meet ends meet, helping her to learn, to, to feel a hug from a woman in the church to show that she is loved and accepted. For a young dad who maybe he walked into this because he, from his perspective, made a terrible mistake and yet to coach him to trust in the sovereignty of God. Who is the true father? That's what it means to do good, not just to stand for the right things, but to do the right things in that moment. To always be asking, what is the most loving, most good thing I can do at this moment? You know, the psalmist doesn't do it just because. He does it because of his brothers, his companions, and because the house of the Lord is among them. Think about all the sweetness that God has given to you. We have the sweet knowledge that our sorrowful exile is going to end. We have the knowledge that we who are once alienated have been adopted as sons of God and daughters of God. We have the sweet knowledge of knowing that Jesus died for you on your behalf, paid your debt, was buried and rose again. Now then, we don't do good so that we're saved, but at the same time, we should do good because of all this great salvation. God has done remarkable things. You know, you study the Old Testament and God takes on the name of Goel, Redeemer. He's the one who, who stepped in on behalf of the weak and slave people of Israel. He used his power and he delivered them. He was ready and willing to 
free them, to deliver them, and then he acquired them to himself as his people and continued to provide for them, to protect them, and to love them. And then he gives the command that God's people are to do the same. They are to be little Goels in their daily lives, allowing the poor to glean in their fields, to be the kinsman redeemer, to women who have lost their husbands, to show loving kindness to the sojourners because they were once sojourners who were not given kindness. My friend, all the things that God has done for you, the psalm tells us now go and do likewise. The good promises of God should motivate us to do good. So, citizens of heavenly Jerusalem, you have good security, a good salvation, and a good city to which you are marching on steadily. Now, and go, now go and do good in the city where you live. Do good to others. That's what the psalmist ends with. So there we go. As Christians, we read the psalm and we see lots of overlap with us and David, don't we? We're just like David. We're not heading for a physical city, but a heavenly city. We are heading to a city where God himself will dwell with us. We've been given the glad news that we are going to the house of the Lord and that we will make it there. And then we celebrate this security as we gather together on a day-by-day, sometimes week-by-week basis and unite in worship We long for justice to roll down. We want our king to come back and set it all right. Whatever right is. We may not even absolutely know what right is sometimes. We want the king to make it right. God, just make it right. Straighten the crooked. Unbend the bent. We long for that. We stand for that. We pray for that. We celebrate it when we see glimpses of that happening. And in the meantime, we pray for peace. And we do good. That is how we live as pilgrims in this world. Let's pray together. Father God, Psalm 122 is a beautiful psalm that speaks of the good that you have done to your city, your Jerusalem, Father, as you have established your house among your people. It speaks of the good king who will reign justly. And yet, Father, it also makes demands upon our life. Father, I pray that we will not be duped into prayerless presumption or prayerless complacency. But just as you have given us your presence, just as you have given us security and salvation in your city, just as you have given us the Davidic king who will reign justly, Father, I pray that you will give to us what you command that we will be people of dependent prayer and people who do good to those around us. Let us now do good, Father, as we love the hurting, as we seek to restore the broken, as we continue to groan for bent things to be unbent. Let justice roll down for our good and for the good of those around us. We love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.